Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I got my bro here doing me a real solid coming on because I needed <laughs> uh, somebody to come on to fill my Tuesday slot. And Jonathan's always been really uh, generous with his time, and I appreciate it. Now, folks, I, I just wanted to say before we start this interview, um, this is my first interview that I've conducted since I got COVID. Now, I did test negative the other day, and I am feeling better. And my mom is actually feeling better now too. She actually went out and did some shopping and banking yesterday. So we're both recovering. I'm hoping this interview goes okay because folks, I, I'm tired, exhausted all the time and I got this brain fog. So if I start like can't thinking of words to say, it's it's that. So either way, Jonathan, welcome to the program. Happy to be here with you. I'm glad you've, you've gotten over your COVID at least somewhat. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a little bit of little stuff hanging on, but it's not so bad. So one of the reasons I asked Jonathan to come on is actually Jonathan um, has had some people have criticized him, uh, thrown some criticisms his way. And we're not going to get too involved in the details of it for now, because he's actually going to be doing something. And then once that happens, then we're going to have him come back on to give a more detailed response. But basically, you've had some people, um, a little bit more visibility uh, who have gone after you. And uh, we're not going to give names or anything. It's not about causing fights or anything like that. But I just, you just felt like, you know, maybe you just want to say a few words about some of the criticisms that people have recently thrown your way. Yeah, you know, it, it's always fun to have critics. I mean, as a lawyer, I, I expect opposition. That's how we work things out. And I, I welcome dialogue and controversy and considering new views and so on. So none of that bothers me at all. And as you know, I don't take any of this stuff personally anyway. But it's it's a real uh, challenge in the church, I think, right now, because it, it revolves around this issue of the translation of the Book of Mormon and how was that done. And, you know, older generations like me were always taught that Joseph Smith translated the plates. Younger generations are being told that Joseph Smith didn't really translate anything or didn't even use the plates, but he just read words off a stone and a half. And, and this this tension between those two ideas is playing out. My proposal was that uh, Joseph Smith did actually translate the plates using the Urban thumb that came with the plates. The critics say that, well, there's all these witnesses that said he used the stone and the hat. And so I proposed uh, what I call the demonstration hypothesis to explain why some people saw Joseph use the stone and the hat and why that wasn't really the translation. And, and it's a actually a pretty simple concept just under the rubric the demonstration theory and so it's interesting to see that demonstration idea start to to seep out into the consciousness i guess of members of the church but i think it's even more important for christians because the the stone in the hat originated as an anti-mormon concept it was in the mormonism unveiled book and it was a huge impediment for christians to accept the book of mormon the idea that Joseph used this occult instrument to produce a scripture. I mean, that's that's anathema to Christians, and it's frankly, it's kind of anathema to me as well, but and to many other members of the church who are struggling with this right now, this this changed narrative. And so I propose a demonstration hypothesis to reconcile the different accounts. Um do you want me to show you my painting? Oh, yeah, let's see. Yeah, this is really exciting, folks. So okay. and, so Jonathan is actually an artist. And that does yeah. some beautiful work. You can see some paintings here. And uh, this one is a little, I think you said, is a little bit of a rough sketch. But I, I Yeah, think this cool. is a sketch. I, I feel like it's important for people to 
have a visual image in order to understand what I'm trying to say and what I think the historical evidence is. So I did this little sketch here that, um, and it's rough, it's, it was just intended to look at values and positions and so on. And the, the final painting is gonna be much different than this, but just to explain it to your viewers. So here's Joseph Smith looking at the stone in the hat with the plates under a cloth and the scribes, there's three scribes at the end here that are writing down what he's saying. This is a, an illustration of what David Whitmer described happened at the Whitmer home. He said they, they had the table, they had members of the family sitting around the table as Joseph Smith read these words or dictated as he had his face in the hat. And so I, I interpret this as a demonstration where Joseph was trying to explain how the translation occurred, but he was under that commandment to never show the Urim and Thummim or the plates. So how could he accomplish that? How could he explain it without showing it? And this is this is a technique that the stone and the hat that was familiar in the area at the time. And I think he used it as a way to convey the meaning. And that's all it was. And now my critics say that I said that he uh, tricked them or lied to them. I didn't, I've never said that. I don't think that's what happened. I think he, they all understood it was a demonstration at the time. And I, I elaborate that in the book and my other uh, blogs and, and interviews and so on. But anyway, this is just a little preview for your audience <laughs> and yeah. of, a, yeah. of a sketch. Basically. No, just, and just so I noticed, like I'd asked you off camera that there's like a, something like a covering the window Maybe explain. Oh yeah, what that's about. David Whitmer said, "Here's the window in the background," and David Whitmer said they drew a curtain across it so outside people wouldn't be looking in. Oh, okay. And and that's really interesting because uh, the whole book Mormonism Unveiled, which was published in 1834, the critical book, the veil they're talking about is what was behind the veil when Joseph Smith was dictating. Because at the time, everybody understood Joseph Smith was dictating from in seclusion. From behind a window, a curtain, a covering, a veil of some sort. And so David Whitmer described this as the, the curtain that would block the outside people, but on the inside it wasn't. That was his explanation. Of course, Martin Harris and others said that Joseph was dictating from behind a veil, and that's why critics adopted this Solomon Spaulding theory, the idea that he was just sitting behind there reading Solomon Spaulding's manuscript. Um, Anyway, so that's why I put that in there. And that's why David Whitmer had, had mentioned this curtain. Okay, well, that's that's uh, fascinating. So now, of course, we had Grant Palmer commissioned like the very first drawings of Joseph doing the, right. um, you know, the Sith model. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and that was like one of the first times that was ever done. Um, and then, uh, so I think that's really cool, you know, just to add to the uh, visual history of the uh, narrative, because of course, uh, Photos, paintings, uh, photos like of Joseph Smith and paintings right. uh, play a uh, you know a real important role in telling the story. Yeah, and I think once once people get this idea in their mind, they can assess it for themselves. And there's a some of the critics have a real knee jerk reaction. Oh, we've never heard this before, and it can't be, and so on. But that's that's just a you know an, an initial reaction to a new idea. A lot of people have closed minds and they don't want to consider alternatives. But, you know, I've been around this for a long time now, and I've seen lots of variations of church history as well as of uh, Book Mormon geography and so on. And after you have some experience with these, you can be open to different ideas. 
And I, I think my critics are going to eventually mature and, and recognize that there are alternative interpretations. You know, just the, the other day, I was talking to William Davis, yeah. who wrote uh, Visions in a Seer Stone. And um, he's going to be coming on so soon, folks. Uh, we've both been kind of really busy and haven't had, I haven't had a chance to read yeah. the book uh, thorough, complete yet. Um, but um, I just thought maybe you could just talk a little bit about maybe his multiple working hypothesis. Well, I, yeah, I read his book. I thought he did a good job on explaining his hypothesis. I, I think, you know, the bottom line is it contradicts what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery said. And so, as does the stone and the hat in general. But I think his interpretation that it was a performance that Joseph gave based on headlines, essentially, or an outline. Mm -hmm. if, if you're going to accept the stone and the hat, if I'm looking at it as a, let's say, a Christian or a non-believer, then I think William Davis's explanation is logical and makes sense. That's why I, that's another reason why I don't think the stone of the hat is viable. But the real reason is that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery responded to this stone on the hat idea from Mormonism Unveiled. And they emphasized that Joseph translated the plates with the Urim and Thummim that came with the plates, which was not the seer stone. And that leads me to conclude, well, whatever he was doing with the seer stone, it was not translating the Book of Mormon. Hence <laughs> the demonstration idea. You know, I'm just curious, um, in your mind, what did the Urim and Thummim look like? Well, I think it was it looked like spectacles. Okay. You know, you get into the issue of the Urim and Thummim in the Old Testament was not the same as the Urim and Thummim that Joseph had, right? I think we all understand that. In the Old Testament, it was the two stones they would throw to get a yes or no answer. But that's where I, I brought up in, in my book on Jonathan Edwards, that Jonathan Edwards explained the Urim and Thummim is any device that enables us to communicate with God. And by his definition, the way Joseph Smith used the term is perfectly legitimate. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So, um, you know, I, I, I find your story and in, in your thesis about the Jonathan Edwards and, the, and then the, the, the two uh, plate theory, which is gaining steam, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me like this is, this is the Jonathan Neville moment. <laughs> oh, I hope not. <laughs> you know, I've had people ask me to go on tour, do more podcasts, you know, promote the books and all that. And and that's not my thing. You can see I'd rather just be an artist here in Oregon. I love it here. It's, it's awesome. At the same time, I feel like there's so many people who are leaving the church because of the narratives that they're being presented just don't make sense. They don't align with church history. They don't align with what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery said. And they're not even rational. You know, I've, I think I've mentioned I have a book coming out called The Rational Restoration. It'll be out in about uh, two months, roughly, where I, where I kind of summarize this whole narrative that to me makes sense. And I hope that it appeals to Christians and other non-LDS people to recognize that God really is, plays a meaningful role in our lives, that the restoration of the gospel is a rational event that makes sense, and that the so-called quirks in church history can be explained with this narrative that is consistent with what Joseph and Oliver said all along. Mm -hmm. it's, it's some, some people have called it, uh, what is it, uh, uh, what is the term? It's like neo-traditional or something like that to say that, wait, I'm, what I'm saying is, hang on, let's go back to what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery said and see if what they said makes sense and if it's consistent with the evidence. And in my view, it is. 
regarding the translation as well as Kamara, as well as the other things. You know, one of the things that I find interesting, and we've talked we've talked about this in the past, but, but basically for most of your life, you would have been kind of like a mainstream Mesoamerica guy. And 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 after yeah. and just off camera, you kind of share you took me down a trip down memory lane. I thought maybe you could <laughs> okay. take our audience down. Well, there. yeah, we've never really gotten into my story. My I, I was kind of raised in two families, one LDS, one non-LDS. And so I saw the difference from a young age. I wasn't baptized until I was nine as a result. And anyway, that's a whole story we could get into someday. But definitely by the time I went to college, I always wanted to go to BYU. Actually, I was I was torn between um, Oregon State and BYU because I wanted to come out here to Oregon and be an oceanographer and all that. And I finally decided, well, let me um, I better go to BYU first. So I did. But when I was at BYU, I took a class from John Sorensen, the, the guru of Mesoamerican stuff. And I happened to, I'll show you this manuscript. The other day I came across it when I was going through stuff. It, here's a 1980 version of John Sorensen's book, um, which was eventually published as an ancient American setting for the Book of Mormon. But in 1980, he sent around uh, an early draft to a series uh, to several archaeologists and others, I assume. Well, I had a friend, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the time, and I had a friend who was an archaeologist who shared this with me. And it's a fascinating manuscript to go through. But on the back, as an example, here's one of the early uh, hand-drawn maps of John Sorensen's concept of the land northward, land southward, and Chiapas, and all that part of Mesoamerica. And so, and so there's hand-drawn maps in this that by the time they were published, of course, they're all professionally done. But did he, did I, he draw them himself? I, I didn't catch if you if you said well, he, they're hand-drawn. I, I don't know if he drew them himself or not, but they're just hand-drawn maps uh -huh. that reflect his concept. I assume he drew them, but he may have had someone else do it. I, I never asked him about that, yeah. but but they're they're the maps that are really the basis for what I call M2C, the Mesoamerican Two Camorras theory which of course was all based on the work of L.E. Hills, the RLDS scholar in the early 1900s who, who really developed the idea of two Camorras and had the Mesoamerican map that the LDS scholars today have, have, you know, some people say plagiarized, others say copied, mimicked, whatever. But um, this, is, this was a hand-drawn map that John Sorensen had in his early manuscript. And there's, there's others in here too, as, as you flip through the pages, but... Hmm. So it's just a, an interesting bit of uh, church history to, to show that I've been involved with this for a long time. And I, I went through this book with this archaeologist in Santa Fe, and we discussed all the ideas and concepts. And I also happened to come across an old insights. This is the old farms insights. <laughs> this is from uh, October 1984, so nearly 40 years old now. But it was announcing the, the publication of the book. So this this came out four years after this manuscript. Okay, had four years of editing and peer review and so on. And this one talks about how this book was coming out. Um, let's see, the book will become required reading for all people interested in the antiquity of the Book of Mormon. You know that that was how they promoted it, and I fell for it. You know I bought the book, I, I absorbed it, I thought it was awesome, incredible, etc went to Central America, went to some of the sites and so on. I mean, I was all in on this. And 
I think you've asked me what changed my mind. Well, I should point out too, here's their logo mm -hmm. that they're still using a Book of Mormon Central, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I think is kind of ridiculous. And then over here, this, this issue from February 1985 explained what the farm's logo stands for. <laughs> and of course, they, they use the Mayan glyph here because they're convinced that uh, the Book of Mormon took place in Mesoamerica. And so, you know, to me, I don't know, it, I fell for it because I trusted the, my professors. Uh, I think I've mentioned before that Jack Welch was his first year at the law school as a professor was my last year as a student there. And we had a long conversation about Hunibli one time and so on. But, you know, I, I really didn't know much about church history at the time. And I didn't I, I didn't even realize that Oliver Cowdery and Joseph had declared that the Hill Camorra was right there in New York. Joseph's mother said that the very first time Moroni visited Joseph Smith, he, he identified the hill as Camorra. So that's where it originated. And once I learned all that history, I started thinking, well, wait a minute, how do we get this idea, <laughs> John Sorensen's idea here, that Camorra is down in Mexico? And I, you know, this was, I don't know, five or six years ago when I met Rod Meldrum and Wayne May and all that. And I learned this different perspective that is consistent with church history. And it just makes so much more sense. And as you know, I wrote the book, Moroni's America and so on. But that's a that's a little bit of a digression of where we are today. But I just wanted to, I, I think critics need to understand that I've been around this stuff for a long time. I've analyzed it from a lot of different perspectives. And now when I go back to a book like this or Mormon's Codex, the, the cognitive dissonance is evident because they just never address what the early, uh, what Joseph and Oliver said about this. And I have another one here that might be interesting to readers, or your, your viewers. This was The Worlds of Joseph Smith. This was a book published based on uh, a, a series of presentations at the Library of Congress. I think it was in 2005. Hmm. And in here, I don't know if you probably can't even get this. I'm sure it's way out of print, but you can get a digital version of it. <laughs> but what's funny in here was they had, they showed the um, Stevens and Catherwood drawings and the Times and Seasons articles to show that Joseph was convinced that the, well, first of all, that Joseph learned about Book of Mormon geography from these articles. And second, that he was convinced it took place in Central America, which, as you know, I've discussed that at length too. Mm -hmm. But this just, just shows you how. Uh, embedded these ideas have been over the years in LDS culture and it's not it's difficult for young people like my especially some of my critics to come to the realization that what they've been taught is just inconsistent with church history and with what the prophets have taught and so there's a real cognitive dissonance underway right now among many Latter-day Saints both on the translation and the Book of Mormon geography and I'm, I'm excited about it because, at least for myself, I've resolved these issues. And it makes sense to me that it's, it's rational that what Joseph and Oliver taught is consistent with uh, the external evidence. You know, one of the things I want to point out is that I have actually reached out to some of Jonathan's critics. Um, and, and actually, I, I gave them the opportunity if they wanted to come on and present uh, their, uh, you know, a counter narrative. Um, I, you know, and that's, that's still, it's an open invitation out there. Also folks, I, you know, it's 
partly just because I've gotten so busy the last few months and the channels just exploded. But I have, I'm, I'm making a genuine effort to have some people come on to talk about the Mesoamerica model as well, because, you know, look, I don't, in one sense, you know, and a Christian, a Christian apologist got really mad at me when I said this, but I don't have a dog in this fight in that, <laughs> you know, I'm not here to advocate Jonathan's position. I'm here to talk to interesting people who have interesting ideas. Yeah. And I also think that part of the reason I've been so fascinated by Rod Meldrum and you and that group is that it's, 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 it's a, it's something that's on the move, you know, and it's, 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 it's quickly gaining um, momentum and, and people that are definitely embracing um what's going on. So I think that's partly why I'm, I'm having you guys on is because I think there, you guys are kind of like changing the course on a lot of things and making Mormonism. Uh, the, the, a lot of people are re-looking at things differently. And, and even like you had talked about how Christians have been reaching out to you and talking to you about like specifically the Jonathan Edwards stuff. I just think that what I like about what you're doing so much is that it's, it's enabling Christians and LDS to have a, com a conversation yeah, with each other. And exactly. I don't see that with a lot of the other stuff that's out there. Well, I don't think, I, I don't think the world is, as a whole, Christians or otherwise, find any credence in the Mesoamerican stuff. It doesn't make sense. And when you get into the, the church history and what the prophets have taught about the Quora specifically, the cognitive dissonance is evident. I mean, they're having to say that Joseph and Oliver were wrong. They were mere speculators and so on. And so I, I like having a consistent message that I think would have far more appeal to uh, non-Latter-day Saints. So, by the way, that kind of leads up to this idea of the new app, the Church's Book of Mormon app. Yes. We want to talk about that. I, I pulled it up here on my phone. People can download it. I really like this app a lot because it has a, a way to, um, right here at the bottom, you can just share give that barcode and people can download it right on their phones. And then they have the whole text of the Book of Mormon available to them. It's it's really cool. And there's, you can discover, it has this whole thing about discovering it and how to access the Book of Mormon. And there's a, there's a really interesting webpage that I thought I'd share with you related to this. I'll have to share my screen. I yeah, guess, let me, let me that, enable but, share screen. There we go. Yeah, but it, it shows how the Bible and the Book of Mormon work together. Well, this is, uh, let me see if I can do that here. Uh, okay, can you see it now? Yeah. So this is on Coming to Christ and, and the church's webpage, but it says how the Bible and the Book of Mormon work together. Both books can help you draw closer to Jesus Christ and learn more about his gospel. That is the entire message. And, and I, I hope that uh, more Christians and, and even non-Christians, but non-LDS people can get this message because that's the whole point is to, to uh, bring people closer to Christ. But it goes down here and explains how the Bible is the word of God. The Book of Mormon is another witness. And then it explains how the Bible and the Book of Mormon support each other. Hmm. They don't contradict each other. This one I, I really like. It says, is this from the Bible or the Book of Mormon? <laughs> and they, they have a little passage here, and you have to decide which one comes from the Bible and which comes from the Book of Mormon. So, for example, you turn on this one, you flip it, that's from the Bible. Turn on this one, and you flip it, it's from the Book of Mormon. I know I know yeah. that one is definitely the Book of Mormon, the Adam Fell one. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, of course. And then this one's from the, the Bible. Okay. But it just shows how the, the two scriptures, at least what I consider scriptures, interrelate and they teach the same principles. And you've mentioned that too, that the, the Book of Mormon is a very Christian book. Absolutely. So, so yeah, that's great. And so this is actually the official churchofjesuschrist.org uh, come unto Christ uh, yeah. page. And it uh -huh. has to deal with the Book of Mormon. And you say that you, people can have access to the complete text of the Book of Mormon, and it's very user-friendly? Yeah, uh, it's, it's wonderful. And here's some examples of some other teachings, you know, from the Bible and from the Book of Mormon and so on. Hmm. So this is, you know, I, I'm involved with the Museum of the Book of Mormon webpage, where we're doing similar things to this, to introduce the Book of Mormon as a uh, another witness of Christ, but it works with the Bible. And so I love this, what the church is doing here. This is really an exciting, um, simplified, but clear uh, approach that explains the Book of Mormon to um, to people. Oh, well, that's cool. I, I, that's, that's another fascinating resource. It reminds me, of course, you have your Book of Mormon Museum. We also have Casey Kern, who's got right. that great interactive website uh, for people who want to engage the Book of Mormon as well. Yeah, Casey's website is phenomenal. I, I recommend it all the time. And I use it all the time because he really has uh, an, an incredible amount of information that's easily accessible. Plus, you can join with other people and do study and, and all that kind of thing, too. But his webpage, you, you should put a link of it yeah, to well, it in the show notes because that's that's an amazing resource. And what I really like about both KC and the church's webpage is they're they're not advocating a particular point of view the way the book of mormon central app does i i really discourage people from using the book of mormon central app because it's very dogmatic and propagandistic whereas these make these the scriptures accessible to people and don't put spin on it they let people make up their own minds about issues of the translation the geography and the historicity and so on so anyway, I thought I'd show you that one. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for sharing that. And I think that's sure. very interesting um, to just look at that. And that's the thing, you know, some people, I've heard some of your critics say, well, Jonathan Neville, he's he's against the brethren. And he's, he's yeah, the, just like, buddy, yeah, he, he's, he's trying to build, I don't know, I think you're trying to build up your church. Yeah, defend totally. your church. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a pathway missionary. I teach institute. I, I'm all in and I love it. I love the idea of establishing Zion, and I think that's what's the most important objective to me: bring bringing people to Christ and establishing a Zion society. My one of my favorite aspects of the church is the community that we share. Wherever we go in the world, we have people who have common interests and common ideals, and common objectives in terms of building Zion. And that's why it's funny to me that that critics. <laughs> even within the church i have people ask me how what kind of a church is it when you have these critics that are so uh, vociferous and antagonistic and i say well people are people but hopefully we could all go to the temple together and be fine and you know i don't have any animosity towards any of them and so i, I i'm i find a lot more in common with uh, church members but also non-lds who are seeking for a way to establish Zion or to have a an ideal Christ-centered society in their lives, but they don't know where to find it. And that's what I'm hoping we can, by sharing the Book of Mormon and the message of establishing Zion, that we can attract those people to join us, whether they join the church or not, but at least 
join us in seeking to bring people to Christ and establish a Zion society. You know, it's interesting because uh, my friend, Jeff McCullough, who's an evangelical pastor with Hillel Saints, is yeah. uh, he's talked to me, and I'm not going to give too many details because I don't know when he's going to announce it, but he's actually going to do like a Book of Mormon thing, um, okay. kind of approaching it for the first time. And uh -huh. uh, it's a really cool thing that he's doing. Um, his channel is doing very well, by the way, folks. Is, and I just want to congratulate Jeff for a lot of milestones he's recent, recently hit. But I think I'm going to have him back on because it's going to be another interesting Book of Mormon-centric uh, thing that he's going to be doing at some point down the cool. road. So I think it's just yeah, fascinating it. to have these interesting uh, outside-of-the-box type of thinking yeah. and ways of looking at it. Um, you know, like I tell people, the Book of Mormon is a thoroughly Christian document and should not be um, be feared. Um, it should be engaged. And actually, I think it. If, if 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 you're a let's say you're a critic, you're an apologist of the Mormon Church, right? I mean, mm -hmm. or you're you're a critic of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and you're a Christian evangelical. <clears throat> you could. I think people would much respect you if you use the Book of Mormon to maybe give Christian apologetics or maybe criticisms of the church. I think you could actually make a better case to at least, well, at least he's quoting from Nephi, you know, <laughs> to make his point, you know, um, because like you yeah. had said before, you know, the book of Mormon came out before the church was established. So right. it's almost like, here's this book that's for everybody and you don't have to join this church. Right. And, and it's become so uh, tied in together. I would much rather have Christians who are on the outside engaging the book of Mormon and, and using that as a way of even I don't want to say critical. Well, if they want to be, they're going to be critical, but they could use it as a means of having a, a better dialogue. If they really truly want to actually talk to people, I think that might be the better way to go. Yeah, I think so too. And and I think I mentioned this. There's a chapel somewhere, as I recall, it was in Brooklyn. It was an LDS chapel where they they had printed uh, or, or transcribed some of the text from the Book of Mormon on the ceiling going around the the chapel, and the church sold it to a Christian group, and they bought it and they never changed those words because there were no citations <laughs> and so i would say like come unto christ or whatever those passages are and they loved them they thought well, these are beautiful they didn't know they came from the book of mormon so you have a and, christian chapel that's full of book of mormon uh, <laughs> yeah. verses <laughs> yeah and i'm and i've been told by several people that there's there are christian ministers who quote from the book of mormon in their sermons but they don't give the references and the, their congregations don't realize that it's from the book of mormon but they just it it, the, the teachings are so rich and powerful that they resonate with people and they do bring people to Christ. When that's what's so interesting to me is actually um, there are Pentecostals that I have and talked to, okay, that I've engaged okay. and who, and, and one is actually moving to Independence, Missouri. And you're, what we're having here is we actually had, there recently was a conference of Pentecostals and restorationists, independence-based restorationists in particular, mm -hmm. who are not, they're outside of the purview of, you know, the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but they're both, and it's fascinating because these Pentecostals are embracing the Book of Mormon, and they believe, actually, one of them is moving to Independence, Missouri, because he believes that that will be part of the end-time harvest that's going to happen. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. This guy's an apostle in, 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 in his church. Mm-hmm. And he's using the Book of Mormon. I think, well, that that's kind of cool. And so off mm -hmm. the radar, it's like, it's because of my channel, how unique it is. I'm able to talk to these people because they feel that they can talk to me. And I'll probably get them on my program sometime, you know, because that's interesting stuff. 
before I let you go, and I want to thank you for doing this, by the way, yeah, I, sure. I just, just a few things I want to ask you about. First of all, you said that you got the book, uh, the Rational Faith book, uh, maybe. The Rational, us... the Rational Restoration. It's and that's coming out in about two months? About two months. And are you, do you know who's publishing it or do you have a publisher yet? Yeah, I do. It, well, I'll announce it when it's, okay. when it's, then when it's official. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then one last thing is you would, we, you had teased this out before and I just, and, we, and you, uh, was that you want to do like, uh, the myth of the bound builder myth thing, right? maybe tease a preview a little bit of that, like what format you wouldn't want to discuss that, uh, whether you're going to be writing paper or writing. A book yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. So years ago, when I, whenever I wrote that book, uh, Moroni's America, I anticipated that my LDS critics, the Book of Mormon Central types, would object that I was uh, kind of embracing the mound builder myth, leading people into the mound builder myth problem that Dan Vogel talks about all the time. You know, I think Dan's first book was in, uh, The Indian Origins of the Book of Mormon or something. Mm -hmm. And so Dan Vogel and uh, you know Tom and a few other people have come up with this idea that the Book of Mormon is based on Joseph Smith's understanding of the Mound Builder bit. So I looked into that, like I looked into everything, you know, I read Dan's book and um, I, I read other references about the Mound Builder myth. And I can kind of see where they're, I understand where they're coming from to some degree. But on the other hand, Oliver Cowdery addressed it. He, he responded to the Mound Builder myth. And it, it's one way to look at it is they, um, Dan Vogel and, and the others are kind of creating their own mound builder myth on top of the prevailing mound builder myth. And the whole mound builder myth is, is based on the idea that there's underlying history that we know based on archaeology or anthropology, and that the mound builder myth was false, and the Book of Mormon was based on top of the mound builder myth. That's, that's the narrative that Dan Vogel and others want. The problem with that is there is no written history. There's no, there's no ancient history of the North American Native Americans. It's, it's only inferences based on archaeology and anthropology. And so there's the mound builder myth is, the reason I call it the myth of the mound builder myth is that they're, they're creating their own myth beneath the mound builder myth. Does that make sense? I don't. I, I might not be explaining it very well. You're, you're fleshing it out. I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. 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 So what I'm saying is, in in my view, is the way I read the Book of Mormon, it is an ancient history of these people that's consistent with the anthropology and the archaeology, but it's a written history, and it's definitely Christianized. Whether that was it was Christianized through Joseph Smith's translation or from the way the people described it at the time. But it was, you know, it's definitely because I, I believe Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. I think there's a lot of Joseph Smith's lexicon in his translation. But people have also added a lot of, uh, I, I don't want to say debris, but a lot of uh, patina, a lot of uh, additions to, by interpreting the Book of Mormon as to what it, the society it describes. For example, the Mesoamerican guys, the M2Cers, have concocted this idea that the Book of Mormon describes millions of people, a vast civilization, all this intricate. If you read the actual text, it doesn't at all. I mean, when Alma joined the, the people of Zarahemla, they, he only organized seven churches. <laughs> if you had millions of people with seven churches, that doesn't work. And, and there's, you know, I've, I've elaborated on that before in the past. 
So the way I read the Book of Mormon, it describes the ancient American civilization, particularly in the Midwest, you know, particularly Illinois, uh, Iowa, and up through Ohio, that's completely compatible with the archaeology and the anthropology. And that's why I think the myth of the mound builder myth has to be explored and, and explained to refute this objection to the North American, what they call the Heartlander idea. The LDS critics object to the Heartlanders because they think that it leads into Dan Vogel's mound builder myth. And, and there, John Sorensen wrote an article about that, which is really interesting that we could discuss someday. So it, this is a long way of saying that way back when, five years ago, I wrote a manuscript of, based on the myth of the mound builder myth. And I never published it because nobody ever objected to it. Or nobody ever brought up that point. Recently, Dan Vogel has. So I'm thinking, well, I maybe need to resurrect that. I don't, I, I hate to publish yet another book because there's <laughs> too many books out there. But I need to do it in some way, maybe a YouTube video, maybe, okay. you know, a blog post, something like that. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's you know, Dan and, and Tom make a good point about if, if, if all you know is their version of the mound builder myth, then it's a pretty compelling argument. But I think there's more to it that they haven't really explored. Well, that's uh, once again, great episode. Thank you for coming on. You know, I just wanted to say Thomas Murphy um, and I have been in touch and he is uh publishing uh with uh not john Sorensen, i always forget his name no, simon uh, southerton simon Southerton. southerton. Yeah. uh they're they co-authored a paper that's going to be in a major anthropological journal this fall and uh it's based on his initial presentation one of his initial presentations that he gave on the channel and yeah. uh he acknowledges me and the channel in in the paper which yeah Cool. cool. So it's just really cool to have these conversations. And that's the other thing too, you know, I mean, I have Thomas Murphy on, I have Dan Vogel on. Perhaps when you do something, um, I'll have those guys on to give their view because, sure. you know, if you yeah. want, so whenever you want to do that, we'll have an open forum for that. I think that'd be really fun. Uh, Jonathan, uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the program today. Did we cover everything you wanted to cover? Uh, pretty much. I mean, okay. we can talk forever, but okay. <laughs> that's good. That's plenty for now. Okay. Well, thanks again for coming on, folks. I just want to remind you to don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification for uh, when a new uh, episode comes out. There will be links in the description if you'd wish to uh, help uh, support the channel via PayPal, uh, Patreon, or uh, go to our merch store. Um, that's morebookreviews.com. You can buy T-shirts and swag and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I had I ran into people at the at the Sunstone recently that showed me their they wore their shirts and showed me their iPod cases. <laughs> Anthony Miller had his iPod case with the MBR on it. And so it's really cool to uh, see people wearing my stuff in the wild. So that's pretty cool. So again, folks, I just want to remind everybody that uh, this is a channel where all the voices of the restoration will be heard on Mormon Book Reviews. Thanks for joining us today.